This is our last week in Jonah, uh, which by the way, you can sit up here. I don't really spit that much. Uh, it's okay. It's totally fine. Like you, you will not be drenched in my spit, I promise. Um, but this is our last week in Jonah, and it is very bittersweet. I love this book. I, I joked with uh, the people in the kids area earlier. We should have just taken this literally one week, one verse at a time. And I don't know if you've ever been in a church that spent two years in Jonah, but five years we're doing that, all right? But I am excited. This is actually a very hard text today. Um, and so let me read it to you, and then let's pray. Jonah 4.1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? And then verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and set to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade so he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which you came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Well, we have made it to the end of the book of Jonah. And like any book, right, any book has a story arc. This is like any other book. This is where celebration happens, right? I mean, the whole city of Nineveh just repented. They turned from their sin and they turned to God. And so now we know Jonah as forever as the, God who brought, as the guy who brought about the greatest revival in human history. I mean, he is, Jonah, the model evangelist, right? I mean, he is who we look to, to know what it means to be obedient to God and to walk with a people who repented to God. This is the moment, right, in the book of Jonah, where Jonah and the Ninevites ride off into the sunset. They walk off holding hands, singing kumbaya, and celebration happens, and we can all feel good about ourselves, right? No, but that would make sense, wouldn't it? <laughs> In a story arc, like, Jonah is not a romantic comedy, just spoiler alert. This is supposed to be the happily ever after moment. I mean, think about it. Jonah ran from God. God grabbed him in the belly of that fish in his sin. God gives him a second chance, and in his second chance, he answered, right? He was obedient. Like, this is a great redemption story. Jonah leads this incredible revival, one of the most, the biggest recorded revivals of all time, and the credits roll, and we're supposed to feel good at this point. But that's not what happens here. It's a very odd chapter and an odd book, right? 
And so in verse 1, it says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. There are a lot of people that believe that Jonah, this book of Jonah was uh, written by Jonah himself, that it's an autobiographical book. And, and I think that's right, that Jonah himself wrote this book. And I think that part of the reason I believe that is because Jonah 4 is brutally honest about Jonah, <laughs> just brutally honest. And I think God gave us this chapter, Jonah 4, because we can relate to Jonah. This is the journey of the Christian life, that we all run from God and God pursues us. In love, he calls us to himself, that he saves us by his grace from the pit. And not only does he save us, but then he launches us into mission to make disciples of all nations, to bring God's love and grace to the peoples of the world. But the myth, the myth of Christianity says, become a Christian and you'll never struggle again. That's the myth of Christianity. Become a Christian and you'll never struggle again. It's the mask that we're tempted to put on every single day, that since I am a Christian, I don't struggle. I can never be honest about the state of my heart. I can never be honest with God about what I'm really thinking. And what's beautiful about this chapter is that we get a reality check, that even after everything that we have seen in and through Jonah, that even then, he's still struggling. And we're no different. Like, it's okay to admit that you struggle. It's okay to admit that you doubt, that you still have questions about who God is and who God has called you to be. And here in this chapter, we see a running prophet turned praying prophet, turned sent prophet, we see him turn into a struggling prophet, okay? It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. But it displeased Jonah. So what is the but here? What is Jonah displeased about? Let's flesh that out. Well, in chapter three, we see Jonah preach to the people of Nineveh. And so Jonah preaches and it says that all the people believed. They put on sackcloth. They repented from their sins. And so if you read Jonah 3.10 and 4.1 together, you actually get a more full picture. In Jonah 3.10, it says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it, verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. So what made Jonah angry? What made Jonah angry is that God did not punish the people of Nineveh. Now, if you have been journeying with us from the beginning, we talked about in chapter one how Jonah is written with a lot of poetry. Okay, there's a lot of play on words in the book of Jonah, and it's meant to be humorous, right? That was humor in the Hebrew language, was play on words. So there's a word in Hebrew that is used all throughout this book, and it's a play on words. It's the word bad, okay? Now, and it can be used to describe moral bad, it can be used to describe something bad that is happening. It can be used to describe something that something is bad, meaning that you don't like it. And the book of Jonah will play with that word bad all throughout the book. So it kind of works like this. God was going to judge the people of Nineveh for being bad, right? And he was going to bring about something that was bad. And here in Jonah 4, Jonah feels bad. So Nineveh was doing something that was bad, so God was going to do something that was bad to the people of Nineveh. And that made Jonah feel like God was bad. And what's interesting is when you want to emphasize something in Hebrew, if you want to emphasize something in Hebrew, um, there aren't words like exceedingly or very. So to emphasize something, you would just repeat a word. So Nineveh repented of its bad, so God relented of his bad, and Jonah thought that was bad, bad. That's exceedingly. 
No one cares. I find that fascinating. Um, so let me move on. Verse 2. He prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew, this is important, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now, before we just dump on Jonah here, let's give credit where credit is due. And I don't want to pass by this. I think this is important. Notice what he, does he do here in chapter 4 that he didn't do in chapter 1. In chapter 1, he runs from God. Just runs from him. He doesn't commune with God. He, he doesn't process how he's feeling with God. He doesn't process his anger. He doesn't, he doesn't really think and consider everything that's happening. He just gives up. But here, Jonah does have the maturity to take his anger and point it towards God. I find that fascinating. I think that's part of Jonah's sanctification, right? That Jonah is growing. This is a different person in chapter 4 than he was in chapter 1, that God is growing him. God is working on him. He doesn't just straight up run from God, which I think is what I do a lot of times. When something bad happens in my life, or I get mad, or I get frustrated, I remove myself from God, and I don't talk with him. I don't commune with him. And, and here, Jonah brings all of that to God, and he's brutally honest, right? We see this in other places in Scripture as well. David does this, that he takes his displeasure, his disappointment, and he prays that God is not afraid of your anger. He's not afraid of your displeasure with his plan. He's not. But he meets you in the midst of that pain and the displeasure, and he continues to pursue you. In fact, the pursuit of God for Jonah is no different here in chapter 4 than it was in chapter 1. That God is still pursuing his prophet. And it's the same for us. That he will continue to pursue, pursue you in the midst of your struggle. And Jonah turns his anger into prayer. And that's a good reminder for us that we don't just pray to God when our feelings are in check, that God wants all of us, all of our anger, all of our confusion, all of our anxieties, that he wants to meet us in that place. It, it can be righteous anger, right? That someone did something to you. And I, I, I know there's people here, like the, the, someone did something to you and that hurt and that ticked you off. Or maybe there's an injustice in the world like the reality of the unreached or human trafficking, that can make us angry. Maybe it's petty anger, like your husband didn't do the dishes again, right? It can be selfish anger, which I think is what we see in Jonah here, but that we can take that anger and we can bring it to the throne of God, that we can bring it to him. Now, that's the only credit Jonah is going to get because the rest of this chapter is bad, bad, okay? What's Jonah really doing here in verse 2? I think he's attempting to justify his disobedience. He's attempting to justify his disobedience. Notice the language. He says, this is what I said when I was in my country. And this is where we start to see Jonah's nationalism, his partiality, and his prejudice come out. And, and let's take a sidebar here. There's probably some historical context that is helpful here, because I think if we understood the background of Jonah's relationship with Nineveh, then we wouldn't be so hard on Jonah. In fact, I think most of us would have the same response if we were in Jonah's. I'm not sure if we would be acting any different in this moment if we were him. So let me do a sidebar on some background with Nineveh, the Assyrians, and Jonah. Nineveh was in modern-day Iraq, 
It's the capital city of Assyria. And three times in Jonah, it's called the Great City. It was massive. Jonah 3 tells us that it took three days to walk across the city. The city had two walls, okay? It had an exterior one and an interior wall. And the interior wall was 50 feet wide and 100 feet tall. It was massive. Nineveh was known as the most powerful and the most grand city in the entire world. Like, think of modern-day New York City, Washington, D.C., Paris, right? These cities that when you go to them, you are in wonder at what humans can invent. So they were known as a grand city, powerful. But what they were really known for was how violent they were, how brutally violent they were. One historian called Nineveh the cruelest vilest, most powerful, most idolatrous empire in the entire world. We have um, some writings from some of their kings. And I do want to warn you if you have kids, this next quote is, is kind of graphic. Um, but I want to communicate to you just, I want to put you in Jonah's shoes. So this is from King Ashurnapishol second. This is what he said after one of his victories in battle, one of his conquests. He said, I stormed the mountain peaks, and I took them in the midst of the mighty mountains. I slaughtered them with their blood. I dyed the mountain red like wool. The heads of their warriors I cut off and formed into a pillar against their city, and their young men and women I burned in the fire. Of their leader I filleted him and spread his skin on the wall. That's brutal. That's dark. That's why Nahum, another prophet in the Old Testament, called Nineveh the city of blood. Was known for its cruelty. And they weren't only violent, they were also like pretty arrogant people. They knew they were the best, they knew where they were the most grand, they were, they were completely known for their arrogance. Another one of their king, King Ershadon, said this. And imagine, before I read this, if you're a historian, right, and you find this document about one of the great kings of the world, a great discovery where you can learn about the wisdom of the old kings, and then you pull out that document, and this is what it says from this king I am powerful. I am all-powerful. I am a hero. I am gigantic. I am colossal. I am magnified. I am the chosen one. And it just goes on and on and on from there. So they were a violent people. They were also an arrogant people. And it's not only Jonah who thinks this, but the whole world at the time agrees with him. And history agrees with him. So put yourself in Jonah's shoes. Jonah sees his anger as righteous. He thinks they do need to be punished. They do need to be judged. He feels justified in his anger. The Assyrians had killed his friends, killed his relatives. They were a threat to his very way of life. And so he feels justified in his anger. God, you need to punish them. And and here's the deal. It's not like Jonah has a bad theology here, okay? He knows God. He, He knows God. He understands God. He says, that's why I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God. I know that you're merciful. I know that you're slow to anger. I know that you're abounding in steadfast love. Jonah knows God. His theology is rock solid, but the problem is he has a lot of theology, but he has very little love. He has a big mind, but a tiny little heart. Rock solid heart. And the temptation is no different from us. Big theological minds, yet spiritual infants that we can explain to someone how to pray but we have no idea how to model it. We have a perfect understanding of a gospel that we never share. 
And here in Jonah, we see a guy that loves the idea of grace when he's the recipient, but hates the idea of it when it's extended to someone else because he thinks that they are undeserving of it. And here's what Jonah missed. Here's what I miss. Here's what we all miss. That we are all, all of us, every single one of us, undeserving of the grace of God. Me, you, Jonah, the people of Nineveh, no one, not one, deserves the grace of God. And God doesn't measure measure my sin against your sin and sprinkle extra grace on us if it's necessary. When you put it simply, here's what's happening here. Jonah has been hurt by the people of Nineveh. He's been hurt by them, legitimately. He's been hurt by them, and he disagrees with their way of life, and in his pride and his selfishness, he refuses to believe that God should show them mercy and show them love. He wants them to suffer. He gladly enjoys the grace of God and love of God for himself, but when he's faced with the idea of them getting it, he gets angry. And when you think about that, man, when you really move yourself out of that situation, it makes zero sense for a person who has been saved by the grace of God, a person who did not contribute one ounce of effort towards their own salvation, a person who was once dead in their sins, to look at another dead person and say, no, you don't deserve to be alive to know about God, but at the same time, not know the heart of God at all. Like, to, put, to, to have a clear understanding of what the church is, the people of God gather, that this, the people of God gather, we have one goal, one mission, one thing in common, that our goal is to worship God, to give him the glory that he is due. We have one mission, to make disciples of all nations to a lost and broken world. And we have one thing in common, that we have all been saved by grace. No one earned their place here, but Christ has purchased our place in the family of God. So it makes zero sense to have a clear understanding about what the church is, but then wag our heads at others because we think that they don't belong here. I'm not saying you do this. But the church is not built around a hobby. It's not built around a political idea. It's not built around a social cause. The church is built on Jesus Christ and nothing else. So let me say this. For those of you who have ever felt unwelcomed, alienated, unloved by the people of God, I just want to say, and I think all of us would agree, you are welcome in this place. If you've ever been hurt, You are welcome in this place, and you keep listening because the pursuit of God is undeniable, and you can't outrun it. I'll say to you what Jonah said to God (laughs) in his anger. It's it's one of the most quoted phrases in the Old Testament. It's in Exodus 34, Numbers 14, Nehemiah 9, Psalm 86, Psalm 103, Psalm 105, and he can go on and on. In Exodus 34, Moses tells God, hey, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Show me who you are. And when God shows him, this is what it says in Exodus 34, 6. It says, The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I would say to you what Jonah said to God in his anger, that God is merciful. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who he is. And so for the person that you think doesn't deserve the grace of God, I think I would lovingly say to you, 
if they turn to him in repentance, then they too can enjoy a God who is merciful, who is gracious, who's slow to anger, who's abounding in steadfast love for them. Jonah's not okay with that. That idea of them experiencing the love of God makes him angry. He says in verse 3, please take my life from me. It's better for me to die than to live. He's so angry that he doesn't even want to live anymore. He would rather die than see God give mercy to those in Nineveh. And so God asks him a question. He says, do you do well to be angry? Now, when an all-knowing God asks a question, we know that he knows the answer. He's trying to help Jonah here see his hypocrisy. Because what Jonah really wants is for God to be something other than God here. He wants God to betray his own character. So for God to say, I don't care that they repented. I don't care that they turned to me. I'm going to punish them anyway. They did bad things, so now they get my bad wrath. If that's how God worked, then we would all be in trouble. He wants Jonah to see his heart, to see his heart. And he wants Jonah to see that Jonah's heart and Jonah's mind are lying to him. God wants Jonah to see the root of his anger, that in the root of Jonah's heart, there is idolatry. There's idolatry. And we know that because of what God does next. It says, verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and set to the east of the city and made himself a booth there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. I want you to notice something in verse 5. There is a progression here that is very similar to the progression that we saw in Jonah chapter 1. In Jonah chapter 1, when he ran from God, he went where? You remember? Down. He went down. He ran from God and he went down. Down to Joppa, down to the ship. Now, in Jonah chapter 4, where does he go? He goes out. It says that he went out of the city. And then it says he went east. The Hebrew person would have understood east to mean that you are moving away from God. When God banished Adam and Eve from the garden, where did they go? East. They moved away from the presence of God. In Genesis 4, 16, Cain does the same thing. He goes east, away from God. And then he makes a booth, which they would have understood this as twigs that you would tie together and put leaves on top. They're the same kind of booths that the Israelites would have made when they were wandering away from God. As Jonah's heart becomes more and more selfish, angry, he moves away from God. It's the same for us. When our hearts become more and more focused on us, we will move away from the heart of God. And Jonah here is consumed with his anger. And this is such an easy trap for us to fall into. Because we aren't that different from Jonah. When someone hurts you, like really hurts you, it's easy to fall into the trap of, well, they did this to me, so they need to be punished in this way that we create in our hearts and our minds what we think justice looks like. That we've got this box, and we put our hurt in that box, and we say, okay, that means that they have to be punished in this way. Maybe it's not a singular person, but your anger is focused on a group of people that are different than you. Maybe their way of life offends you or hurts you. You might look at that group and go, God, you need to stop them. You need to punish them. What they're doing isn't Right, and what happens is where God says that we are to love, sometimes we replace it with, well, God says you need to pay. And in that moment, we distort the gospel. 
and it's no longer the gospel. But it's rather, hey, you want a place here? You want to enjoy the love of God? You better pay the right price for it. And Jonah is waiting in hope that maybe God would change his mind, that God would punish Nineveh. So he's watching, and God appoints a plant that would give him shade. The plant is a creature comfort for Jonah, that in the midst of his anger, he finds rest in a plant that gives him relief from the sun. And it says that Jonah was exceedingly glad. The plant was good, good. And the plant serves as a reflection of Jonah's shallow heart. It says in verse 7, when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Now, do you remember what Jonah said in chapter 2, verse 8? He said, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. What's happening here? Jonah has created an idol in his heart. And God grows this plant to give shade to Jonah to expose Jonah's idolatry. We do this all the time. We make idols that distract us from the calling of God, that move us away from the heart of God. And we worship these idols. As we worship them, our hearts grow more and more cold. Whether that be family, career, status, political party, a hobby, we make these idols. And before we realize it, we find ourselves worshiping that thing or an idea rather than God, and as we do that, our hearts move further and further away from God. And so he points a worm to destroy that plant. And I can just imagine Jonah on the top of that hill going, really, God, the one good thing I had in my life? You ever said that? God, the one good thing I had, you took it away. That's what happens here with Jonah. Jonah is paying regard to vain idols, and in that moment, he is forsaking his hope, the hope that's found in steadfast love. So God asked him another question. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And I want you to notice something here, and it's a reminder of what we saw in Jonah chapter 1. The faithfulness of God. The pursuit of God. He does not change. He will not forsake you. He will not leave you in your sin to rot. He could have he written Jonah off at any moment. You just don't get it, do you, Jonah? Psh, Amos, you're up. He doesn't do that. He pursues his child over and over. He is a loving father who cares, who loves you. And he does not, his character does not change. He does not compromise. He does not shift. He does not improve yesterday on who he was today. And that's good news for us because that means we can't outrun him and he will not leave us in our sin. So find comfort, brothers and sisters. He will chase you and he will appoint storms, plants, worms, scorching east winds, and anything else that he chooses to get your attention. That God in his sovereign grace is speaking, you to, speaking to you over and over through the things of this world, through the people of God, that he moves the pieces on the board, and that's good news for us. In his providence, he provides sight to see his goodness. And he provides an awakening heart that can worship him. And so God will ask one final question to Jonah. He says, you pitied the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into 
being in a night and perishing in a night. In other words, he's saying you are pitting a thing that you had nothing to do with. You are invested in a thing that was given to you. And then he says in verse 11, should, I, should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are 100, more than 120,000 persons? And then he talks about cattle. I have, I'm just going to be honest. Look, I have no idea what cattle has to do with any of this. Some of you might know there are lots and lots of theories about this. If they tell you they know, they don't, okay? So for this moment, we're just going to say that there is a purpose, and one day someone will discover it. But for now, we will just focus on what we know. Okay, so I'm not going to talk about the cattle. Um, But let me say this about verses 10 and 11. The word for pity here means to grieve over someone or to grieve over something. To grieve, to have your heart broken. It, It directly translates to mean to have tears in one's eyes. So let me read it again. The Lord said, you have tears in your eyes for the plant." For which you did not labor, nor make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not have tears in my eyes for Nineveh? Should I not grieve over them? God is communicating, I am grieving over the people made in my image. Notice, we don't get an answer from Jonah. It's one of the weirdest things. We don't get an answer from Jonah. The book abruptly ends. We don't know if he repents or not. We, we don't know. And I think that's intentional. I think that's intentional. I think we are meant to look inward and ask the question, am I Jonah? Am I Jonah? Have I misunderstood the grace and mercy of God? Am I moving away from God in my own anger? Am I holding on to the same pride as Jonah, I think it's left open-ended because we are meant to reflect on that ourselves. And so if you will, I would like to pose a question here to us that I want you to think about. It's a sensitive question. And so if you have notes, if you're taking notes, this might be a good time to stretch a little bit, wake up. But if you have notes, take out your notepad. Or if you have a phone, take out your phone for the notes app. And I want you to write this question down and write your answer, okay? Here's the question. There's a couple different ones depending on which category you might be in. Um, But here's the question. Is there someone that has hurt you that the thought of them receiving grace and mercy from God troubles you? Like if they were not to meet the kind of justice that you think that they deserve, but rather God forgive them, forgave them in their repentance, does that thought trouble you? Or is there a group of people that just because of the way they live their life, the way they operate, that the thought of them not getting the kind of justice that you think they deserve, does that trouble you? That instead of God punishing them in his anger, he relents and shows them mercy. Does that thought trouble you? Maybe it's a friend or a spouse or a parent that's hurt you. Maybe it's a group of people on the opposite political aisle or just in a different way of life than you. I don't know. But ask the question, and then if the Holy Spirit brings to mind a name or a group of people, write that down. And whether or not you you wrote down a name or not, or you can think of a name, I want us to take a second here, and I just want us to pray. With every great revival in human history, you know where where it started? Prayer. We cannot attempt to do the work of God without God. 
And it starts with grieving hearts over sin and grieving hearts over the lostness of this world and grieving hearts over the unreached peoples of the world. They are far from God and it should break us because we know the love of God. We know how good he is. Who are we to grab grace for ourselves but then hold it from other people? And so if you would bow your head, we're not closing, by the way. I've got a couple more things after this. Um, sorry. Um, <laughs> bow your head. And first, if, if you found yourself struggling with that question, that there is someone who's hurt you or a group of people, I think you need to ask, I need, we all need to ask for forgiveness. Our hearts are not in line with who God is. Take a second and just pray and ask God for forgiveness. And then the second thing I want you to pray is to pray for that person, for those people. Or pray for the people of the world who are broken, who have no hope. They are putting their hope in vain idols and the things of this world. Ask that God would give you a grieving heart over that. That ask that God would give you the same kind of pity that he has for the people of Nineveh. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I want to mention just a, a couple of fun and very interesting things about Jonah, something that we can all walk away from, and hopefully you can be thinking about it uh, this week, just to kind of close out our time in the book of Jonah. Three things that, that are just fascinating. First, have you noticed the sovereignty of God throughout this whole book? Like, God is sovereign over every single detail in the story. Chapter 1, 4, the Lord hurled a great wind, great wind upon the sea. Verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Uh, chapter 2, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah upon the dry land. So God says vomit and fish vomit. Uh, he, chapter 4, 6, the Lord appointed a plant. Verse 7, God appointed a worm. Verse 8, God appointed a scorching east wind. God is appointing things over and over and over. That God is sovereign over the movement of the wind and the movement of worms. Okay? Nothing is outside of his control. He's sovereign over storms and he's sovereign over vomit. He's in control of it all. There is not one detail in creation that is not ultimately under his control. And that's good news for us. It means that he has the fate of the Assyrians in his hands. If he wants to destroy it, he's going to destroy it. If he wants to relent, he's going to relent. And he's just not sovereign over pagan nations. But he's also sovereign over his prophet. That's really, really good news for us. Right? It's good news for every single one of us because the reality is, is because God has authority over all nations, all things, all nature, in heaven and on earth. And we can realize that we cannot outrun God's pursuit. If he wants a worm, use a worm to speak to us, he will, because he can, right? That's good news for us that we can't outrun the pursuit of God because he's in control of everything around us, every single thing. The second thing I would mention, and I find this 
Absolutely fascinating. There are people who believe that when Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, that he is essentially retelling the story of Jonah. I find that fascinating. I don't know if you're familiar with the story of the prodigal son. It's in Luke 15, so I encourage you to go and read it. But people think uh, that Jesus is just essentially retelling the story of Jonah. We don't know for sure. Like, he doesn't say that explicitly, but there are just too many similarities to discount it. So think about it. In chapters 1 and 2, we see Jonah as the first son. The first son who took all of his inheritance and he ran. He ran from his father until he squanders it, right? He finds himself living with the pigs and he... It says he came to himself and he realized, I have the Father's love. (laughs) And people think, well, that's Jesus talking about chapters one and two of Jonah, right? As he runs from God and he finds himself in the belly of that fish, he, he realizes the grace of God. And then the second half of Jonah is a reflection of the older brother. The older brother that when the younger brother came home in repentance, the older brother did what? Judge, he met him with pride and his selfishness and his righteous anger. Just like Jonah was filled with anger and pride at the repentance of Nineveh. Now, I don't know if that is truly what Jesus was doing, retelling the story of Jonah, but it's very similar. And I think it is something that we can chew on, right? I don't think it's an accident. It's something that we can chew on throughout the week the similarities of the book of Jonah and the parable of the prodigal son. Lastly, I would remind you that we are all Jonah. We are all Jonah. I mentioned this when we looked at Jonah 1, but it's worth mentioning again as we close out the book, that the Hebrew people on the Day of Atonement, once a year, they gather around and they read the book of Jonah together. They ask God for forgiveness of their sins, they make a sacrifice, they read the book of Jonah, and they all say in unison, we are Jonah, we are Jonah, we are Jonah. We all rebel against God, but God pursues us and he makes a way. And for Jonah, God provided a fish, but for for us, he provided what? He provided himself. He provided himself that Jesus Christ came to rescue and redeem us by putting on flesh, dying on a cross, resurrecting from the grave, and in demonstration that sin no longer has a hold on us. And now we leave this place. Right? We walk, he walks out of that grave in victory, and he says, We join him in his mission to bring the gospel, the love of God, to a broken world. And so let's close out the book of Jonah by doing that. If you would, go ahead and stand. If you're on the worship team, you can go ahead and come up. Um, Go ahead and stand, and this might seem weird, but uh, I do want to close out the book or this series this way, that we would stand and declare, we are Jonah, we are Jonah, we are Jonah. Which means that as a faith family, we are declaring, look, we all run. None of us are perfect. We're all broken. But God in his grace has pursued us. He has rescued us. He has redeemed us. And now as a faith family, he has launched us to bring that gospel message that Christ has come to a broken world that needs redeeming that we would have tears in our eyes for the people of the city, the peoples in the corners of the earth who have never heard the name of Jesus, the people in your family who don't know Jesus, that we would declare, no, we are Jonah. Even though we run, God still pursue us. So what's it's going to work, because we all need logistics, um, is I'm going to count to three, and then we're all going to say it together. 
and we're going to say it three times, okay? One, two, three. We are Jonah. We are Jonah. We are Jonah. 